you've landed here at episode 210. Are you someone that likes a bit of a drink? Maybe you're even someone that has a spot of wine or a stubby on the daily, on the way home from work or amongst the noisy chaos of the endless to-do list at home. Sometimes it might even end up being a bottle a night. However, despite being on the Terps consistently, you definitely don't see yourself as an alcoholic or someone that has a problem with alcohol because your life is, well, relatively together. But you're actually starting to feel that it's really draining your life. You're beginning to feel the health impacts of putting alcohol through your system so often, waking up tired, not able to sleep correctly, gaining weight. And you're starting to realize that having an alcoholic drink might actually be doing your body and your life more harm than good. If you're nodding your head over there, need not worry because you are in the right place as we dive into a conversation about non-alcoholic drinking problems, the manipulative marketing that mothers and teenage girls receive from alcohol companies to get them feeling good about what will be a lifelong consumption of their product and what the work really looks like to begin changing your relationship with alcohol, which interestingly parallels in many ways the same as it does with sugar. Now, this isn't an anti-alcohol episode by any means, but it is a focus on helping you find a path to a better, healthier life. And for some, that may include sobriety or simply finding other sources of stress management and happiness. There's a lot of good stuff in this one and we go in lots of different directions. So, stick around to the end and enjoy. Let's get into it. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? We're not too far away from the pointy end of the year, but we're still slogging away with this year's mission to coach 300 people to get control of their emotional eating so they can lose weight and actually keep it off without counting calories or eating rabbit food. We'll need to update that spiel soon, but get in before we do. So if you're keen, the links are in the show notes below. Drop down there, click on them, reserve your spot because our next intake is already filling up quickly, which is a cool thing to be uh, saying. Um, Okay, so I'm pumped about today's episode because it's with someone that I've spent time with in real life. Can you believe it? We thought 2020 and 2021 relegated us to a life of the internet, but alas, not entirely. I want to introduce you to Sarah Rusbatch, an ex-grey area drinker and a passionate ambassador for sharing her story and letting other women know what life without booze is really like. So many women are suffering in silence with the often very detrimental side effects of grey area drinking without knowing it. That, and also not knowing that experiencing uh, this situation without any support because they don't classify themselves as an alcoholic. But there is support available and that's what Sarah's all about. Sarah had her last drink in April 2019 and uh, her life has changed immeasurably since then, which is obviously fantastic and we're going to hear a little bit more about that. She's become one of Australia's first accredited grey area drinking coaches and had recent appearances on Channel 10 Australia, Sky News and all the major radio stations and has become the go-to expert when it comes to discussing this topic, which is in great need of more attention and airtime, which is exactly what we're going to do today. Give it more airtime. Sarah, what's going on? How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Thank you for that introduction. Sometimes I sit there and smile and go, oh, is that really me? <laughs> That's why a lot of podcasts that I go on, they do the... They do the um, recording of that after, 
And I always do it with people on the line because I find, yeah, people are like, oh, yeah, I'm all right. I'm not too bad. <laughs> I know. I might go and um, sit down and have a cup of tea after this and reflect in, um, in my awesomeness. So, yeah. <laughs> well, you're definitely awesome. And before we get into it, I just want to say thanks so much for including me in uh, the recent event that you held here in Melbourne. It was so lovely to meet you, get to know you, but also the people in the room and Amazing, too, that a few of the people in the room are podcast listeners, which was just unexpected and awesome. So thank you. Yeah. And hello, ladies, if you're listening now. Yeah. So I know that every time I mention you or your name to anybody, the first question I get, and you probably get this a million times a day, is what is grey area drinking? So I think before we get into any of the juicy stuff, we'll just start with a bit of clarity around what that means so listeners can know if, if that's them or not. Yeah, and that's a really good place to start. So historically, the conversation around alcohol has been you're an alcoholic or you're not. Mm-hmm. So so let me ask you, Maddie, what do you, if I say to you, someone's an alcoholic, what's the first thought that comes to mind for you to describe them to me? Oh, good question. So I'm thinking like someone that hasn't changed their clothes in a few days, <laughs> someone that can't really string a sentence together, like is just really hammered and cares about nothing else but where the next drink is. Exactly. Right. Whereas most people don't fall into that category. Right. So we think of alcoholics as being people who are end stage physical addiction. They wake up with the shakes. They have to have a drink every morning. And most of them would need to have medical support to stop drinking. Otherwise, they would die because alcohol is one of the only substances in the planet that the human body can die from withdrawal from. But alcoholics are not where I work. So gray area drinking, and I like to put it in terms of a scale. So if you think about someone's drinking as being on a scale of one to 10, one is someone who very rarely drinks, maybe doesn't drink at all, or maybe has a glass of champagne at a wedding to toast the bride and groom. And other than that, don't think about alcohol. 10 is that what we've just described, end stage physical dependency on alcohol, where they wake up and need to have a drink the moment they wake up. So those two extremes are really, really um less common. Gray area drinking is probably a five to an eight on that scale. So we've passed the point where alcohol is something that we don't ever think about and we just do every now and then. We've passed the point of being a take it or leave it drinker. We've started using alcohol in some way dysfunctionally, whether that's to avoid an uncomfortable emotion, whether that's to manage stress at the end of the day, whether it's to avoid feeling lonely, whether it's boredom, whether whatever the reason is, our relationship with alcohol has become a relationship. It's not something that we we just do every now and then. And that defines grey area drinking. And I remember hearing you speak recently about the only demographic of people in society that is increasing their consumption of alcohol is middle-aged women, right? Yeah. So the ABC did a report quite recently um, that showed that while in many other categories, the alcohol consumption is decreasing, in middle-aged women, it's increasing. Why do you think that is? How long have you got? (laughs) Right. So my answer to that question is this. Because women of our generation, I'm 46, 
are juggling more than ever before. So we are parents. We are often daughters of um, elderly parents. We're raising our own kids. We're also working full-time or flexible hours so that we can work that around school pickup. We have got increased pressure to look good. We're trying to fit in the gym. We've got pressure to be cooking home-cooked meals. We've got pressure to be managing our mental health. We've got pressure to be making the book week costume that week instead of buying it from Kmart like I always do. And so the (laughs) pressure on women. We are busy, we are stressed, we are overwhelmed. And what alcohol is really bloody good at in that moment is switching off our busy mind. And many of us have not learned any other way to do that. And alcohol does a really good job of that until it stops doing that. Makes total sense. And I think the, yeah, like you kind of summed it up there, but it's like, the modern day maybe feminist argument of the woman that bees everywhere to ev- and is everyone to everyone, um, you know, in their lives, and they're just this powerhouse. Like that, yeah. Unfortunately, there's uh, some kind of cost to being a powerhouse, and you could, you know, in this conversation we're talking about women. It's the same for men. There's always sacrifice, but in many situations, women sacrifice their own body and their own happiness in that process. Yeah. Absolutely. And the other thing that is really important to point out here is that back in the early 2000s, the big alcohol industry deliberately started targeting women. So they realized that there was a gap in the market. They weren't selling enough to women. So they deliberately started targeting women. And that's where we saw the rise of pink gin and all of these. Um, there's, a, there's a wine in America called Mum Needs Wine. Um, or, or, and there's another one called Mummy Juice. And that actually got patented as an alcoholic drink, mummy juice. So mummy wine culture has played a huge role in the increase in in women starting to drink. Now, I drank a lot socially, but it was only when I became a mum that my drinking changed and it became something that I was doing on my own at home. And it was celebrated and it was encouraged and it was what we were all told that we deserved at the end of a busy, stressful day. And you didn't need to tell me twice that I deserved that glass of wine after a day of cleaning up poo all day, pureeing carrots, singing nursery rhymes and going a little bit demented. And so I was started to look forward more and more to that 5 p.m. wine. I tell you what, Sarah, you are skyrocketing the condom stock price right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it's so much. And I, and I know from the work that I do with women as well, whether they be, you know, new mums all the way to grandmas, like this narrative um, or belief or idea that society has pushed on women that they need to be never, you know, uh, forever giving themselves away. And the idea that self-care is somehow selfish and they should, you know, punish themselves for that. It, it's, it's, it's a really hard sort of idea to break for people because mums have this maternal urge to be caring and to be supportive and to be available. And so how do you go about encouraging people to start prioritizing themselves to say, hey, you matter, like in all of the kids and the partner and the the sick parents and, and all that kind of stuff, like how do you get them to get people to believe that they, they actually matter enough to, you know, maybe change their drinking or their eating behavior? And that is the work of that you and I are both doing is, is, is in helping women to believe that. Because the thing about alcohol is, and what I was doing and what so many of my clients do, 
the reason we can, can drink so much is because we can drink our alcohol while we're making the sandwiches, doing the ironing, prepping dinner, unloading the dishwasher, running the bath, helping with homework, and we can do all the things with a glass of wine in hand. Whereas most of the other things that we talk about doing in terms of go for a yoga class, go for a walk, do a meditation, they take you away from the hub of the family home. And for so many women, they don't feel that they deserve to do that. They feel guilty from doing that. And the the heart of my work has to come from going, you aren't going to be able to change your relationship with alcohol if you're still doing all of the things and not finding some other way to start managing your stress and overwhelm. Does that mean that a conversation around getting hubby involved in helping more is a part of that strategy? Yeah, absolutely, if that's um, if that's what it takes. But it also comes down to changing up your routine. Like, So for me at the beginning, because I was going to bed so early and I was sleeping really well and I was waking up energised because it turns out that when you don't have two bottles of wine the night before, you actually feel pretty good in the morning. No and way. So doing, yay, who'd have thought <laughs> it? And so I was getting out of bed and what I was often doing, because my worst time was five till six o'clock in the kitchen, cooking dinner, tired, and just wanted a drink to go with that. So I knew that I had to get a, find a way to not be in the kitchen from five till six. So what I started doing was getting up early and doing a slow cooker, prepping it first thing in the morning so that I was planning I wasn't going to be in the kitchen from five till six. And every single night for the first three months of my sobriety, I had a bath at five o'clock because it was a, a way of soothing me. It was a little bit of self-care. It was something that I wanted to do. I didn't have guilt with the kids because I was kind of like... I'm not going to be switching off and disconnecting because I've drunk a bottle of wine by seven o'clock and I'm shoo-shooing them through the evening story time so I can get back to my wine. I was able to just be that bit more present. And so I realized that if I was going to be able to remove alcohol, I had to be adding some other stuff in and I had to be changing up my routine. Yeah, that's one of the things that drives me crazy uh, and I'm always sort of raging against the machine with conventional diet culture is that the idea of just just be strong enough and it's like the trigger won't happen. The, the, the annoying event or the stress won't happen. It's just and, and don't fill the gap that you previously put chocolate or wine into with anything. Just be like, just be really strong and you'll be great. And it's like that system collapses every single time because, yeah, there's still an emotional trigger that happens. The brain is seeking uh, some kind of reward in that space. And if we just leave the middle bit empty, yeah, it's going to fall apart, you know, today or tomorrow, basically. Absolutely. And I think you and I are quite similar in that. And with all of my clients, um, what I teach is if you're taking alcohol out, what are you adding in? Yeah, totally. I call them routine swap outs. Um, Same kind of idea. Uh, On that though, like, do you think that there needs to be two types of work? And what I mean by that is like the idea of this swap, let's say, what we're adding in, because a lot of people use wine to escape, right? Or sugar to escape. And so when we swap something out, even if it's non-alcoholic, a non-alcoholic alternative, or in food, you might say, not sugar, but it's got stevia in it, let's say, that's still a method of escapism. So do we need to first master healthy escapism before processing and changing, do you think? I think it depends on the person. So I've got so many clients who have got sober by swapping to alcohol-free drinks because we often say keep the ritual, change the ingredient. And if you're craving that 5 p.m. on a Friday can often be a time that, you know, historically we've been cracking open the wine. So maybe it's having an alcohol-free wine. But that's maybe the start. And what we then have to do is start doing that deeper work, which is why do I even have a life that I want to numb from at five o'clock every day? And why do I, why am I creating, why am I 
looking for oblivion. Like there's been research done that has shown that men are more likely to drink to enhance a good mood and to have um, a great time socializing. And women are more likely to drink for oblivion. Oblivion. That sounds like devastating. (laughs) Doesn't it? Like why are so many women, and I was there myself, living this life where we're craving ethanol because let's be really you know look at what alcohol is it's ethanol it's petrol that we're craving something to switch our mind off at five o'clock every day because our life is just so overwhelming so at the start i i look at let's do 30 days without alcohol and let's do the whatever we can to get away from it and then it's let's start doing that deeper work let's start loving ourselves let's start knowing what are the things that really trigger us? Let's start perhaps dealing with some past hurts. And a lot of my clients and myself included go into therapy and start just unpacking some of that stuff because alcohol has stopped working. But sometimes we need to unpack some of that before we can find that freedom. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely find the same thing with the people I work with. There's a lot of stuff buried deep down there that we're either eating or drinking to literally bury on top of liters of wine, on top of kilograms of sugar. Um, because often in the chaos of being a mum and a business owner or a, you know, a worker of any kind, there's no time to deal with it. It's like, oh, I felt it come up. Oh. I'm in the middle of everything. I can't deal with it right now. So it's like, oh, we've got to push it down. And that just becomes the ritual for decades. And they eventually find one of us. And they're like, so I've been doing this for 40 years. (laughs) Oh, totally. Like when I stopped drinking, I've been drinking consistently for 27 years. And I've got clients who have been drinking for 50 years. Like it's, Mm. you know, most people, like most of us are teenagers it doesn't even occur to us not to drink because we've just had it modeled to us from such a young age that of course you drink alcohol. Of course you do that when you you know, become like 15, 16, however old you are. And so we've been doing it just consistently for such a long time. And they say in the alcohol world that the age you were when you started drinking is the emotional age you resort back to when you stop drinking. Oh, and so then you've because you've used alcohol to numb emotions for all of that time so then so you you've kind matured. of got to, yeah so you've got to start developing some emotional maturity and that takes time and it takes work oh well and it'd be super confronting to be like oh i'm a 46 year old woman and then you remove wine for a week and you're like i feel like a tantrum throwing 12 year old <laughs> i have often felt like a tantrum throwing 12 year old um but it's in that that we get to know ourselves because you yes. can't get to know yourself if you're drinking a bottle of wine every night. Yeah, and I can totally relate. And, and that's the, the uncomfortable, unsexy reality that that is the work. Like totally. sitting in that discomfort of feeling like a 12-year-old that's losing their shit, that is the work. Like and getting familiar with that environment and being able to navigate it. And then it takes a few times going around the roundabout to be like, oh, I know what's happening now. Yeah, yeah, Exactly. I'm curious what I keep thinking of just because I love um, I love educating people on the world of marketing manipulation so that they can see more clearly. Like I'm curious to learn more about the marketing to women of wine and, and alcohol and how that's changed over the years and, and maybe in a way that we can help people understand when they see marketing what's happening to them. I've sort of done that with sugar and vegetable oil and a few other things. But like... What kind of stuff is in that world that people should know about so that they can make better decisions? Oh, my God, so much. I'm just reaching for this book because I've got some notes written down that um, I really want to share with you. But um, So it was in 
There was a certain, it was back in the early 2000s that one of the big alcohol companies kind of, for the first time, started to break down the marketing of alcohol and looking at specific demographics. And that's when they realized that women and um, weren't drinking enough for them. So they wanted women to drink more, but they also wanted to target women at a younger age. And that's when the Alcopops started to come in because they realized if they could create a drink that didn't taste like alcohol, but had created brand awareness so with your, you know, the big names um, that we won't mention right now, then they, people would start drinking them. um, And then that would be the brand that they would then purchase when they were an adult and they were looking for a vodka or a gin or, or whatever it was. And so big alcohol deliberately started targeting girls um, around the um, to make alcohol more palatable because remember alcohol itself is not that palatable and then they started targeting women and that's when they came up with all of their pink gins and their rosés and, and mummy wine culture and all the baby grows that the babies wear that say I wine so my mum needs wine and, and all of this stuff that just started to become so integrated with new motherhood was oh my goodness you must deserve a wine and you must have a wine and, and then we started doing their marketing for them because we're all on social media just going oh here I am with my baby and my glass of wine and I was terrible for that as well and so it all started playing out how they exactly how they wanted it to marketing geniuses and and because you said you specifically said girls so they're marketing these drinks to underage people like, or at least to make them appealing for all of those of us. I know I totally remember this era in the early 2000s of going to house parties as a young teenager. And yeah, you know, the guys would try and drink beer and the girls would try and drink fluorescent colored whatever. Um, yeah. And that, yeah, that's just, it's just kind of crazy that they, they probably obviously never said it because it's illegal to market to that kind of thing yeah. to kids, but that's what they were doing. Yeah. Yeah, because alcohol doesn't have a very palatable taste for a 16-year-old. So let's just yeah. add loads of fizzy, sugary drinks that make it taste like apple juice or whatever, and then, hurrah, we can all buy it and get really drunk. And then they responded with the public, um, like, well, the government responded to make it look like that they were doing something for the public by bringing in the idea of an Alcopops tax. And it's like, this yeah. will stop them. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But no, there's tons of research out there that shows the time that big alcohol started deliberately targeting women and then the correlation of the increased number of um, alcohol-related deaths and liver disease in women. It all yeah. correlated. Of course it did. Yeah, that's that's sad. I'm just imagining, like, imagine if we had um, that kind of branding around cigarettes in 2022, right? It's like, yeah. you know, sitting here with my, my two-year-old and my cigarettes. That would be such a different response on social media. Be like, what are you doing? The secondhand smoke and, but wine, it's not like that. But you wonder whether it will go that way. Like I'm often will write blogs and talk about this because it is changing. The, the tide is shifting. People are starting to become more aware of the fact that alcohol causes breast cancer, that it causes seven types of cancer, that it causes stress and anxiety, that it makes us feel, you know, more anxiety the next day than we did before we even had a drink. And so people are becoming more aware of this. So you do wonder whether we would ever get to a point where alcohol will become how tobacco has So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. 
And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. To come. Well, yeah, I guess, I guess I hope so. I feel the same about sugar, right? It's like all of these things are heading our society towards very painful, drawn out, younger than expected deaths. Like, you know, like yeah. two generations ago, everybody was basically dying of natural causes. Diseases were starting to come about, like the, the, the big ones that we've got now. And so uh, two generations from now, unless we do start changing culture around these things, it's going to be a really terrifying life to, to be born into because you'll basically be handed your disease at about five years old and you'll be on the prescription train forever. And, and then, you know, marketed to by big wine, big sugar, fixed by big pharma and just on this merry-go-round forever. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so who knows what's going to happen. But I do think that, you know, even the rise in alcohol free drinks and the fact that people are being more open with talking about the fact that alcohol, a life without alcohol is not what we are led to believe that it will be. When you talk about non-alcoholic alcohol, (laughs) if you could say that, um, what it reminds me of is it's like kind of going to a fancy restaurant for dinner and then getting McDonald's on the way home. Because you haven't quite had what you want. Is that, is that kind of the culture around it a little bit? People are like, oh, that, it tastes nice, but now I need a real drink? No. Oh, no. So for some people, for some people should never have alcohol-free drinks. Mm-hmm. And I would definitely put those people in the category of having more severe addiction to alcohol. Whereas yeah. for so many people, it's the habit that has become the problem. And so they can find that having an alcohol-free beer or an alcohol-free champagne at the end of the day scratches that itch to have a, a drink that sends the message to the brain, oh, it's the end of the day, I've had this drink, but it just doesn't have the alcohol in it. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. And, and you said there too like that it's becoming more and more, and I know that because at the event that you hosted, um, we were in a pub that has 25 options that are non-alcoholic, which was fantastic. Yeah. And, and I know over there in uh, Perth or WA, you're doing some work with mine sites in different places, right? Yeah, absolutely. And just making, because the, the, you know, just because I don't drink alcohol doesn't mean I want a fire engine, Matty, when I go out for a Mother's Day lunch, which was what I was offered in one establishment. And it's like, I still have the palate of a 46-year-old woman. I still love the taste of a dry-tasting French champagne. I just don't drink alcohol. So to be able to have like a choice of different types of drinks is great. And I don't drink them very often at all. But sometimes I want something else other than water. Well, fair enough. And I guess, yeah, some people can get sick of the sparkling water solution as well. Yeah. How is that with culture like the Aussie culture the British culture like Western culture in general is like really big on drinking and so is it 
do you do you see it being accepted um, as part of drinking culture? Or is it kind of like the the one family member that wants to change their life or just be torn down by the people around them? I think it depends on who you're with, but I do think it's interesting. In the UK, Heineken Zero on tap is the fastest selling beer that they have because a guy can go down the pub, he can order a Heineken Zero, get it in a pint class. It looks like beer. It smells like beer. They stand with their mates and they're drinking a Heineken Zero. And so, I mean, God, we shouldn't even be in a situation where someone has to do that to not get loads of shit for not drinking, but that is what yeah. happens. But but to be able to, to not have to draw attention to yourself because you're not drinking alcohol, because alcohol is the only drug we have to justify not taking. You know, you say to someone, you've stopped smoking and they're like, oh, good on you. You say to someone, oh, I'm taking a break from alcohol. And they're like, oh, don't be so boring. Just have one. Or I would have people say to me, oh, let's catch up when you're drinking again. Like, I'm still me. I can still socialize without alcohol. So there is definitely a societal pressure that we all drink alcohol. It's so ingrained in us. It's funny you say that because I'm not a big drinker and I've never been a big drinker. I mean, I went through my phase at university because why not party every day when you can? I can't do that now. Um, but I literally say now things like, nah, I'm the boring guy. I'm the, I'm the boring health nut like um, kind of thing as a way to sort of say no. And I mean, pe- you know, a lot of the people I'm around know that I've got a podcast and different things. So they're like, oh, yeah, that kind of makes sense. But yeah, you see other people. Uh, and I, and I, some of the people I work with, I'm not sure if you do this, but we basically help them write scripts of communication. We call them scripts of meaning so that they can have 10, 20, 30 seconds of prepared speech basically that's written with the intention of communicating effectively to that person in front of them about what's going on in a way that me- that basically means that person can't come back at them with anything other than support uh, and if they do just piss them off their shit <laughs> basically yeah. yeah i've got clients who i've got a client at the moment who is a senior partner in a law firm and every week we plan his schedule of what he's got that week and what he's going to say at every event as to why he's not drinking I like it. Yeah, but it's so messed up that that is the society that we live in, that he's paying a coach to help him script a response as to why he's not consuming a class one carcinogenic substance, right? Totally. But I guess we're the, this is the beginning of revolution, right? Is that we're doing, we're doing stuff that is eye-rolling and ridiculous in order to get to a place where it's normal. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of people feel that about their own behavior. They, can't, they, they know they're eye-rolling at themselves. They're looking at themselves in the mirror and being disgusted and angry and negative and horrible. Um, but, you know, it's almost that's the, that's the moment that causes that it's not a want to change anymore. It's the need to change. And it's that beginning of that process of, of revolution, which obviously takes a bit of time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It does take time, but, but the tide is turning. You know, I've got a group of 12,000 women who are all looking to change their relationship with alcohol. Like that's not a small number, right? <laughs> not at all. That's yeah. Massive. And then they're able to influence their daughters and their daughters. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's such a good flow on effect of what those women are um, getting in the space. And well, I guess while we're on it, um, what is the group called? Where can people find it? Oh, the Women's Wellbeing Collective. Um, and it's really, it's an important point that you say there as well. Like I have an 11 year old daughter and the other day I'd had a really busy, stressful day, really busy. And I, and she could see that I was at my max in terms of how I was feeling in terms of my emotional capacity. And I was just coming off a Zoom call and I came out and she goes to me, Mama, come with me. And she takes me to the bathroom and she's run me a bath and she's lit candles and she's put bath oils in it. Three, four years ago, she would have got me a bottle of wine. 
We've got to really think about what are we modeling to our kids because most of my clients have have grown up in houses where they've watched their mums and I was doing it for such a long time, drinking wine as a, oh my God, I've had such a stressful day, I need a glass of wine. And we've got to be really careful about that communication to our daughters, especially because all we're doing is telling them is when I feel stressed, I must drink wine and that makes it go away. Um, And there's so much research now that shows that daughters of alcoholic mothers go on to develop a problem with alcohol themselves. Yeah, it makes total sense. They've yeah, just absorbed the behavior like as yeah, from tiny little babies and just seen it happen in front of them. And it, as you're talking, I'm just thinking about how my parents did it because my parents consumed alcohol pretty regularly growing up, but it was never during any task. It was always like sit down, end of the night, and I've really never seen my parents drunk either. So I'm like, yeah, maybe that's why I don't do it. I yeah. I remember my mum and dad having, my dad was a big drinker. There's a lot of heavy drinking on my dad's side of the family. And I remember my dad and mum having an argument when I was quite young and watching my dad go to the drinks cabinet and pouring himself a very large whiskey. And guess what I did the first time I had an argument with my first boyfriend? I went straight to the drinks cabinet and poured a whiskey. Like monkey see, monkey do, right? So we've got to be really aware of that role modelling that we are doing to our children because we can't deny the facts now. Like they're saying that 20% of breast cancer diagnoses in Australia are directly linked to alcohol now. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. Yeah, and I remember us having a discussion about this at the fact that uh, some of the events where they raise money for cancer, they have alcohol available. (laughs) Oh, don't even get me started. I had to say no to going to do a talk at a breast cancer fundraising event talking about alcohol and breast cancer because everyone was being given a free glass of champagne when they entered. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I remember all the meetings I used to go to um, when I worked in the cancer hospital. And although it's not quite the same correlation with general food because, oh, my God, food causes cancer. Don't be crazy. But, like, we would be having meetings funded by pharma, uh, which were always great because it was, like, loads of food. But, like, everything probably had an ingredient that is in some way in a study contributes to cancer. (laughs) Yeah, it's insane. Yeah, it really is. Everybody's just, like you know, being the doctor with the knowledge that they'll eventually become the patient. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just, yeah, just this kind of um, lineup of just, oh, I'll get my disease whenever I get chosen by bad luck. <laughs> I know, I know. There's something you said recently on a podcast or a news thing that I was listening to and I was really curious to talk to you about it because I think this is the bit that most people struggle with when it comes to behaviour change, identity shift, that kind of thing, is that, you said men- most people will never stay off alcohol long enough to realize how good it feels without alcohol in your life. Like, how much suffering is there in that space that, that is created be- that leads to people not getting there to long enough? Yeah. And this is the thing. Like, when I was drinking, I'd been a big social drinker all through teens um, and early 20s. And then when I had got married and had a baby, we moved to Australia And my drinking just completely changed then. Um, I was lonely. I was homesick. I suddenly didn't have my job anymore. I was at home all day with with young kids. And alcohol became a friend. And alcohol became something that I began to rely on. It became a crutch. It became something that I was looking forward to at the end of most days. And I think so many women can relate to this because nothing quite prepares you for that time where you've gone from from working, from socialising, from being a grown-up, from being completely independent to you're never the same again once you've got complete independence on on these little kids. And that's what the the role that alcohol played for me. So while 
I knew that my drinking was problematic. I would do these Feb fasts and dry Januaries because that's the thing about gray area drinkers. We can take a break. So we do take a break, but when we go back to drinking, our drinking goes back to exactly how it was before, if not more. But the problem is that we're lulled into this false sense of security because we don't identify as being an alcoholic. And we go, well, I can't have a problem because I've just been able to take a month off. And people that um, it's only people that have a really big problem that can't do that. So therefore, I'm fine. But what happens is that most people will never know that alcohol stays in the system for up to 72 hours. So even if you drink three, two or three nights a week, you're still, it's still massively impacting your sleep. So you don't get good quality sleep, even if you've just had one or two glasses of wine. So the next day you're going to feel jaded. You're going to feel a bit tired. You might find, I mean, I don't know about you, but for me, whenever I'm tired, I reach for crap food. My, my morning routine goes out the window. I might, may not exercise to the same potential. And, and everything starts to have that knock-on effect. And I'd wake up each morning going... I'm not drinking tonight. Oh my God, I can't believe I finished the bottle last night when I said I was only going to have one or two. I'm definitely not going to drink tonight. But then it gets to 5 p.m. and we're just back there pouring that glass of wine. Oh, it's fine. It's fine. We can always find a reason to justify it. And so it's about taking that break, adding things in and taking a sustained break because 30 days isn't enough. If we've been drinking for 20 or 30 years, for some of us, we're only just going through the withdrawal and the detox after 30 days, and, and we might still be feeling pretty crappy. And so I always say to my clients, do the three months and see how you feel after that. So do three, four months, because what is that in the drop? It's a drop in the ocean of your entire life. Yeah. But you, you'll never know. I was living my life at a five out of 10, but I didn't know it was a five out of 10 because I didn't know any other way. And it was when I'd had that sustained break from alcohol that I was like, shit. I was only living a five out of 10 when I could be living a nine out of 10. And do you feel that like the sweet spot is that 90 days, that three months kind of thing? I think that three months is when you get a glimpse of how good you can feel. And I think six months is when you really, really embrace the, the, because the first two months or so for people that have been consistent, regular drinkers, every day is about not drinking. Mm-hmm. And you can't imagine getting to a point where you're not just investing all of your thoughts on, I just have to not drink today. And once you embed that and that becomes your new normal, yes, you'll still get those fleeting times where you're like, oh, shit, I could really do with a drink right now. But it just is less and less and less. And then you get to that point where then you start working on yourself because you're not having to invest all your time, energy and headspace in not drinking. And then you start to go, right, well, what do I love doing instead of drinking? Who am I if I'm not Sarah the party pisshead girl? Then what do I love doing with my time? And that's the discovery that we then go on. Yeah, and the, that's a world of opportunity, basically. There's so much in there. Uh, uh, what comes to mind as well is, as we're talking about this space that we create around alcohol is um, a few years ago I was scouring YouTube le- trying to learn like some uh, Eric Clapton songs and I came across an interview about him and Sugar. Um, and he was talking about his heroin addiction, which somewhere in there, there was some alcohol addiction as well, but he literally said it started with sugar um, and, and it just kind of escalated over time. And so uh, I'm wondering if, like, because sugar is a, a totally acceptable, encouraged psychoactive substance as well. So when people eliminate uh, or, or in the beginning phases of elimination of alcohol, do you find sugar ends up filling that gap? Totally. I don't know a single person that removed alcohol that hasn't replaced it with sugar. That's a big statement. (laughs) Oh, honestly, I think about my husband. He never used to have a sweet tooth. He stopped drinking and 
Oh, he'll kill me for saying this. Don't ever... He doesn't listen to podcasts, it's fine. Um, and he <laughs> would literally have half a tub of ice cream every single night. Mm-hmm. Like it, and, and I think there's two reasons for that. I think number one is there's loads of sugar in alcohol. So most bottles of wine like, can have 50, 60 grams of alcohol. And for many of my ladies, a bottle of wine is nothing. Like They can mm-hmm. easily drink a bottle of wine in a night. Um, and so the body is suddenly going, whoa, where's all the sugar going to come from? I need my sugar. And then the second thing is that dopamine reward center. It's suddenly like, right, shit, well, what can I turn to now? Because we haven't yet learned, how do I sit with my emotions? How do I sit with these feelings, these things that I've been dulling down with alcohol for 20 years? All of a sudden, they're all popping up and it's really scary. And so I'm just going to reach for the chocolate, reach for the um, the chips or, or whatever it might be. So, yeah, it's a big, big um, part of going sober is um, the sugar, the sugar monster that comes out. <laughs> well, and I guess in the same way that we were modeled the consumption of alcohol, we most of us were also modeled how to not do emotions or how to ignore emotions or nothing to do with emotions at all. And I would say that's the very vast majority of people in society. And obviously, all our parents were doing the best they could. But now we're also in a world where there is opportunity to put in absolutely no effort and get your nurture, love, safety feeling by quickly ducking down to 7-Eleven because it's open 24 hours a day or around the corner or ordering it online and getting an abundance of this, you know, whether it be alcohol or any type of food delivery. Um, And so even though maybe 100 years ago, people were also not very good at processing their emotions, they didn't have at arm's reach the absolute excessive access to dopamine stimulation through through all of this that we have now. And I think that um, that's part of the problem, right, is that we now have to navigate this world which has unlimited access to love, nurture, care, connection through food and drink. Yeah, absolutely. And some, one of the modules in my um, alcohol-free program is about starting to, I call them dopamine tickles and dopamine punches. And so we've got really used to the punches. We've got used to the hard hitting stuff, the alcohol, the sugar, whether it's drugs, whether it's gambling. And we, so we stop getting the pleasure from the little tickles. So from a cup of coffee in bed watching the sunrise, a cuddle with your dog, um, going for a walk with your kids and watching sunset like we stopped looking for that because we're just looking for the punches and so much of what I do is about starting to look at but what's good in your life like let's start looking for those little dopamine cuddles and the tickles and finding them so that we're not just looking for the hardcore stuff all the time it's funny you call them punches I call them dopamine wrecking balls Okay. <laughs> so there you go. We, you and I, we are the same. <laughs> we really are. I love it. I love it. Um, so where can everybody find you on the internet? Obviously, you're amazing. So everybody should get more of you. Um, so Sarah Rusbatch on Instagram. Uh, my website is sarahrusbatch.com. And like we said before, my um, Facebook group is the Women's Wellbeing Collective. And, you know, for all of your listeners out there, I am not anti-alcohol. I'm not, not out there saying you must never drink again. And if you don't have a problem with alcohol, then go ahead and carry on enjoying your life. But for anyone that's listening that has ever questioned their relationship alcohol with alcohol, has started to think, I'm sick of this cycle because I know what it's like to be in that cycle of promising yourself you're not going to drink, then reaching for the drink, then drinking more than you intended, and then hating yourself, and then going back in that cycle. And that lasted for years for me, and and it did for so many of my clients. So it's knowing that that you're not alone, and alcohol, you know, is encouraged 
for so many of us to to go and drink it and have it. You know, you're in any WhatsApp group and you say to the mums, oh my God, I've had a shit day. The kids are driving me nuts. My husband's doing my head in. And the first response will always be, go and pour yourself a glass of wine. Like we are so conditioned to believe that alcohol is the answer to, to all of those things. And so come and see that it's, there's other things out there that work as well. Yeah, totally. Uh, and for anybody listening, I'll put all those links down in the show notes below so that you can go and jump into Sarah's world and um, yeah, get involved in anything that you might want to. Um, and to wrap up, Sarah, what is one piece of health information that you wish more people knew about? Um, probably the link between alcohol and breast cancer. Um, and I can I say too, I've got another one. When we drink alcohol, the brain responds by releasing cortisol that leaves us feeling more stressed and anxious than we were before we even picked up that first drink. So for all the people out there that are using alcohol to manage stress and to feel less anxious, it's actually causing it. And so finding other ways to manage stress and anxiety is such a healthier way to do it. Love it. Thanks so much for being here and hanging out. And we definitely have to do it again. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. No worries. Chat soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use. And we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.